Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Mallory Ortberg, also known as Dear Prudence. We've got a great guest in the studio this week who's going to be able to help us all figure out what we need to say in those moments in our lives when we have nothing good to say. And and I'm looking forward to that immensely. And in the meantime, I have a general piece of advice for all of my listeners. Uh, Sometimes life feels bewildering and overwhelming. You might find that familiar at present and you think, what what am I doing? What's this all building towards? What kind of world am I trying to help create or be a part of? And if you find that question to be disorienting or distressing or too big or too overwhelming, I want to help you focus this. And I want you to keep your eye on the prize. And the prize is this. We need to help build the kind of world where Starfleet is going to come into existence. You all know that Starfleet was built in 2161 and the headquarters are in San Francisco, actually just across the Golden Gate Bridge. This is why I live in the Bay Area, because I want to be here when Starfleet starts. Make the world that Starfleet can exist in. Um, whatever, Whatever that means for you, as you face questions, problems, choices throughout your day, ask, does this bring us slightly closer to a world where first contact with Vulcan can happen and we can establish the United Federation of Planets? Or uh, is this taking us uh, towards the Mirrorverse? Uh, and and that's the only question you need to ask yourself today. Um, help me build Starfleet. I really want to join. With that, uh, I'd like to introduce our guest today. Uh, Emily McDowell is the co-author and illustrator of the book, There Is No Card for This, What to Say and Do When Life is Scary, Awful, and Unfair to People You Love. She's also the creator of Empathy Cards. Emily, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Um, I hope that you will also help me build Starfleet and um, that just in general, we're going to be able to make this happen. Oh, yeah, that goes without saying. I'm in. 100%. 100%. Thank goodness. Are you yeah. are you engineering track? Are you command track? Are you science track? Oh, I'm definitely not science or engineering. So if that leads command, I'm. Uh, I think that's that's the answer. <laughs> it does. It yeah. does. Command track people are wonderful. Jim Kirk is the greatest person ever to exist. Uh, that was a perfect answer. Well, great. We're off to a good start. We are. Uh, I, I'm. I'm jazzed to jump in. I, I tried to find a couple uh, slightly lighter questions, which which I really wanted to give you. I didn't want to just like give you the most difficult things in the world to to discuss. Um, so we're going to start with the wedding gift etiquette one. Sure. Wedding gift etiquette. Dear Prudence, a good friend of mine from high school, let's call her Jamie, has been engaged to her fiancé for the past couple years. Suddenly, this past December, she sent out Save the Dates for the first weekend in March of this year. The wedding is in California. Initially, I didn't think it was likely that I would be able to attend, given the short notice, cost of the flight, I live on the other side of the country, renting a car, hotels, etc. Jamie had said that if we could make it, she'd have a place for us to stay, which I assumed meant a house to crash in. Another friend and I found cheap tickets and split the cost of a rental car and decided we could afford the trip. When I asked Jamie where we'd be staying, she emailed us a hotel reservation. She booked us a room at a gorgeous hotel and paid for the stay for the whole weekend. Both my friend and I are very grateful and said so, but we're still taken aback. This brings me to my somewhat mundane question. What do you think is an appropriate wedding gift? 
At first, we thought we'd get them a couple of nice bottles of wine from her favorite vineyard and maybe a card with pictures of the three of us from high school. Something thoughtful, but not outrageously expensive. But now I'm worried that might not be enough. Jamie is not materialistic or the type to demand extravagant gifts. But do you think it's necessary to up the ante given that she paid for our room? Seems like a silly question, but I'd just like to know your thoughts. I can't tell you how happy this letter made me because I I never get questions like this. And as soon as I saw a wedding gift etiquette, I thought, oh, this is going to end with like somebody stealing her car. And it didn't. (laughs) And that brought me so much joy because so many of the wedding questions are always like, uh, someone demanded that I buy them the moon or everyone's mad at me because my dress was purple and, and they make me really sad. Right. Or someone slept with my brother and it was weird, like in the wedding, you know, who's in the wedding and like. I did actually answer that question a couple months ago. <laughs> but yeah, this one is is delightful. Do you have any thoughts? Does anything leap out at you? Yes. So my thoughts are, I think that your initial plan of the nice wine and the card is perfect. I don't think that Jamie would have offered or paid for the room had she not really wanted to do it. And had she not, it doesn't strike me as the kind of situation where Jamie is saying subtly, I would, I would like a nicer gift in exchange for this niceness that I'm about to do to you. Right. You know what I mean? Like it, it seems like it is a kindness. Jamie certainly understands the cost, um, and the imposition sometimes that a last minute far away wedding can put on people. And it seems like she was really genuinely wanting to make the experience great for her friends who were going out of their way and and spending hard earned money to come. And I think that it would be almost strange if they did up the ante and gave her something that was uncharacteristically expensive um, because it wouldn't feel like them. Right. Uh, and, and to bear in mind, like you guys, even though you found cheap chick- tickets and you're splitting the cost of a rental car, that's still like probably at least a couple of hundred dollars, um, which it sounds like is a lot for this particular letter writer. Um, so like to bear in mind, uh, you're you're already kind of financially investing in, in celebrating this with her. Um, and she knows that. And that's part of why she went out of her way to like bring down the cost for you. Um, and I think those those sound delightful. Like, wine is something that she can use that that will be special and celebratory. It will remind her of you. And then, like, pictures of you guys from high school is, like, a lovely way to acknowledge the history of your friendship. And maybe, like, for their first anniversary, uh, if you've got a little more money saved up, you can get them, like, some nice flatware or a dish or or whatever it is that, that married people need to stay alive. Something that Something on their registry that they wanted but didn't get. Yes, that's always always such a great way to get, like, friendship brownie points. Like, by the way, it's been a year since you got married. I remembered this very specific set of bowls you wanted, and now they're yours. Totally. Yeah, but you guys, they sound like fabulous friends. It sounds like this is going to be a great wedding. I think you should just enjoy this and and not feel like you are obligated to spend a lot more money on this wedding. Um, Go have a fabulous time. I agree. Yeah. Totally agree. Okay. I hope they're all going to be this easy. Oh man, me too. <laughs> they are not. I just, I just nope, scrolled to the nope, next letter. They're not. <laughs> uh, I, I will take this one away. I was so happy about this one because I get a lot of letters about like the relative neatness of bathrooms, and so often it's like guys who are making a mess, and this time it's ladies, and and I, I love having a chance to flip the tables. Totally, um, it's just always nice to know that we're all capable of being pretty terrible. 
So this we one can all pee, we can all pee on things. Apparently, that is like just part of the human condition is like pee blindness. Like you pee and yep. you're like, oh, is that mine on the floor? Who knows? Time to go back to work. <laughs> okay. So the subject of this one is office toilet etiquette. Dear Prudence, I'm the only man in an office with about a dozen women. We all share a single restroom. I assume I'm the only person who lifts the toilet seat. And yes, I always put it back down when I'm done. My problem is that at least once a week, I discover a sizable puddle of urine under the seat. I assume this happens when someone is sitting too far forward, unawares, and dribbling under the seat. Since my assumption is that I'm the only person who knows this is happening, what should I do about it? I feel obligated to clean it each time, which is gross. Should I send out an office email? Go to my boss? I don't want to be that creepy guy in the office monitoring my female coworkers' bathroom habits. Am I stuck being the office pee patrol? Oh, my friend. Uh, I, I, I want to start by reassuring you, good citizen, you are not creepy. Uh, you are not, like, going out of your way to, to catch anyone doing anything. Like, you're just trying to use the toilet as you normally would, uh, and someone has left pee on it. That's not your fault. It doesn't make you creepy for noticing. Please, uh, you know, clear yourself of that charge. Yes. I mean, not creepy at all to want a, a non-peed-on toilet seat. <laughs> I think, you know, I think that this is where the, and you may disagree, but this is, this might be a nice use of a nicely worded bathroom sign. Okay. Anonymously placed, anonymously placed, um, because it sounds like this letter writer doesn't want to be necessarily the source of the, the, the knowing but doesn't want people to necessarily know that he is the source of the pee patrolling sure no one no one wants to be the person who brings up right a piss issue which is why you know and i'm not normally one to argue for a passive aggressive sign posting in an office you know i'm not a, a stop stealing my sandwiches sandwich random sandwich stealer um, sure person but i think in this situation a note on the wall might not be a terrible thing. What would you recommend that the notes say? Hmm. Because you've think... got to be delicate <laughs> without being so vague that people don't know what you mean, right? Right. Like... And also without being, like, gross. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, this is really yeah, hard. you know, this How is actually a it? tough one because... It's also an education. Like, you're also educating women that it's a PSA. You know, sometimes women's pee can get under the toilet seat, which a lot of women don't know. I'm not sure I knew that. I mean, I'm sure I, I knew it in terms of physics, but I didn't know it in terms of this might be something that I'm doing. And uh, so your note also has to serve as a PSA. Right. I, I feel bad. He, he says that there's only about 13 employees. So my guess is they do not have an HR department, um, no. which would be one of those things that I would love to offload onto HR. Just be like, look, you're mostly here to protect the company from lawsuits, but you sent out this email about P because I don't oh, want to. Totally. That's the only reason I went with a note because I assumed there was right. no HR and I assumed that the boss was one of the was one of the 13 women. And so going to the boss wouldn't necessarily Be super it would be great maybe, to not have it, to have that conversation. Yeah, I mean, maybe you know, maybe the maybe you end up going to the boss, and the boss puts up the note, or the boss sends out an email, so that you don't have to do it. 
Yeah, I, I, I do agree with you. I, I also am not one to recommend a lot of anonymous notes, but I think a note before an email would be nice um, just because, uh, you know, it's in the bathroom where everybody can see it uh, at the relevant time. Um, right. And it can be a little nicer than having to to have your boss uh, send the email, although I think you should keep that in your back pocket. I, yeah, I think you should say something. Absolutely. I don't think you should just go on being the piss mopper. I don't think you should have to do that. I think a sign that says something along the lines of like, uh, please make sure that the seat is clean after every use. Um that feels just vague enough that you don't have to use the word urine or or any of the variant synonyms. Um, but you're also letting people know um, that sometimes they're not doing that. Uh, my only worry, though, Emily, is like that he puts up the anonymous sign. It's vague enough. All the women think it's him because they haven't noticed it, apparently. Right. Um, and maybe they'll just assume, well, it's not me. It must be the guy. And then I... what if everyone thinks he's the – like? He's the guy. Right, he's the one. Junk it. I think that's not. See, and I also think that if I saw that note and it didn't reference the P under the seat, I would oh, look at would the seat just... and be like, "Oh, it's clean." Like, yeah, I'm not peeing on the seat. It's not me. Okay, so it's it's got to say something like, "Please make sure that underneath the seat is clean after uh, each use." That's the PSA it's... part. You know what I mean? Like yeah. that's the yep. that's the part that's like an educational element. Yep. Okay. So, so maybe something like, "All right, friends, uh, be sure to check uh, to make sure that there is nothing under." Oh boy, this uh, is a like, tricky letter to word. It's like, did you know <laughs> that? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> uh, that uh, I think you. I don't know if you might have to use the word "p." Hmm. Yeah, I don't know why I'm getting so squeamish all of a sudden. I'm well, like, ooh, how can we circumvent this language? It's just weird to see the word pee in a bathroom where you're already feeling a little bit like, oh, bodies are the worst. Yeah, although, to be honest, it's better to see it in the bathroom than to see it somewhere else. Sure. <laughs> so sure. I think I think I would say I would make it sort of lighthearted, like, hey, friends, or, you know, did hey, you everyone. know, hey, everyone, did you know? That no, I, I'm, I'm going to fight you there. I don't want to make oh. it a little quiz. Okay. It needs to just no be quiz, a directive. Just... Can't get too cutesy with piss. No, okay. Um, yeah, just something like, hey, everyone, please make sure that the underside of the seat is clean after each use. Uh, there have been issues with puddles in the past. I hate the word puddles. I'm sorry for saying that. But uh, if, if, if that note doesn't go over well... Uh, or if it gets, like, torn down at some point, or if somebody else goes to the boss and is like, what is with this wacky note uh, in in the bathroom, then that does kind of put you in a potentially weird situation because then your boss is like, somebody put up a note in the bathroom and I didn't know this was an issue. Uh, again, that's not really your boss's job description, probably, but uh, it is it is a workplace issue. So in case you don't want to go the anonymous note route, I think... Your next move should be, your first move should be, if you don't want to do that, just go to your boss and say, hey, I wanted to bring something up. It's a little bit uncomfortable. It just has to do with our shared bathroom. Uh, I've noticed that often uh, there is a, a mess underneath the lid when I go to use the toilet. Um, is it okay if I put a, if we put up a note in the bathroom? Uh, or would you rather send out an email just reminding everybody to check underneath and to tidy up after each use? Um, because that way there's no like mystery of like, who put the anonymous note in the bathroom? 
Because some offices will get weird about that, right? Like some offices will be like, who did right. it? Who said it? What's going on? It depends. And on, I don't right. know what kind of office you have. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good point. It, it's, some offices could get totally weird. Some offices, it would be fine. But I, that, that is a good strategy with a boss. I agree. Okay. So either anonymous note first. Uh, or go to your boss and ask for permission to put up the anonymous note. And and I think this is one of those things where you're, you're going to feel a little weird. And, and the best cure for that is to just state it out pretty clearly. Um, don't dance around it. Don't make a lot of apologies. You're not being weird. You're noticing something um, that's there. And uh, the best thing for everyone is for everyone to feel a little uncomfortable and embarrassed for a minute and then start checking after themselves. Um, I would want to know if I were leaving piss deposits in my office bathroom. Oh, I would for want sure. someone to tell me. Yes. I wouldn't enjoy it, but I'd, I'd sure like to be told. Absolutely. <laughs> well, that was, um, that was, I hope we were helpful to that person. I feel, I know. I feel a little weird. I, f- <laughs> I feel like, I feel like we took a long time to get there. Uh, well, it's just, it, it's hard because it's one thing I'll sometimes get questions that are like, oh, my partner or somebody I know like leaves like, drops of urine around the toilet after they pee. And that's like a clear, like, you can see that. That's the floor. That's not hidden from view. Get it together. But this is like secret reservoirs. And that's that's weird. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I didn't know that. Like, I'm 40 years old, and I didn't know that I could potentially be doing that. And so now it's going to change everything. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, this is 100% updated uh, my public restroom, my, my anywhere restroom routine. And, and I'm really glad that um, I guess all our listeners know that now. And, you know, if there's any piss enthusiasts out there, this is just going to be a podcast they're really going to enjoy today. Um, <laughs> you're welcome. This was my gift to you. <laughs> okay. I think we've, we've done as much as we can there. Uh, why don't you read the next letter? Okay. Um, the next letter is tougher. Yes, yes, it is. Much tougher. We're, we're entering a, a different zone here with the next letter. We are. Subject, honest obituary. Dear Prudence, my father is dying. He was, not, he was not a nice man or a good father. He drank, used drugs, was mildly abusive, and financially and emotionally absent. I came to terms with this years ago and kept my contact with him minimal. My brother continued to try to transform him into the father he wanted. It never worked and my brother really suffered because of it. Not too long ago, there was a viral news article about an honest obituary where the children wrote the truth about their father. My brother wants to do that when our father dies. He's written a brutally honest obituary that is incredibly unpleasant. I don't see the point of having this published for the world to see. No, our father wasn't a good man. He certainly shouldn't have ever had children. However, I don't want to open up our family to the kind of scrutiny the other family got merely for revenge— My brother admits that this is what he wants. I don't know what to do. Talking to my brother hasn't worked. I will be the one paying for the funeral expenses as our father has no savings and has been living on disability for years. I've talked to a funeral director and the cost of a lengthy obituary like my brother wants would be well over $500. A simple one with only the facts stated would be $50. Do you think it's wrong that I use money to stop my brother's plans? There's no way he could afford this. If you think it is wrong... Do you see any other way to change his mind about doing this? Woof. I mean, I, I, I kind of love that the letter writer is thinking of this in terms of uh, I'm using money to stop my brother's plans as opposed to I do not want to spend $500 of my own money uh, so that my brother can have like a public therapy session. Mm-hmm. Like, 
you're not using money to stop your brother from doing something. You're refusing to subsidize his desire to, like, exercise his feelings about your father in public. Like, you are not under any obligation to fund that. That is not, that's not like a normal part of funeral costs. So, no, you have every right to say, I'm willing to pay $50 for an obituary that states the basic facts about our dad's life, uh, and that's it. Um, So, like, just in terms of logistically, yeah, it is absolutely okay for you to say, I'm not going to spend an extra $450 um, for you to talk about uh, how how bad a father he was. Yeah, I I agree with that. Um, I think that's that's absolutely true. Um, Because, you know, it's also he talks about in the letter, he talks about revenge. Yeah, that, you know, that the brother admits that the reason he the reason that's driving this is that he wants revenge and it's like well it's also you know thinking about it in terms of the dad will be gone the dad won't know right that this, this is not going to hurt him so, in any way so the revenge thing is is sort of misguided it's more of a it's more of a just anger venting and my question is it sounds like the father's still alive. It says that the father is yeah. dying. So it seems like this is an opportunity for the brother to talk to the father while the father is still alive, rather than waiting and publishing this obituary and putting the financial onus on the other brother. Yeah, no, this says a lot about kind of where the brother is at, that like he's already written the obituary, right? Yeah. Like his dad's not yet dead, uh, they could potentially have a conversation. Um, I, I mean, not that they could necessarily have, like, the big heart-to-heart he's been putting off for years, but, like, it is possible he could say something. Um, but he's just, like, already in this place of, man, once dad is dead, then I'm going to finally be able to say all the things I didn't say to him when he was alive. And that's just not an effective strategy for processing feelings well. Uh, I can I can tell you that right now, brother of this letter writer, that is not going to get you what you want. No, for sure. Nor is it anyone else in your family's obligation or anyone else's obligation to cover the cost of that thing. Yeah, exactly. Like to say I need $450 so that I can write all the things I resented dad for in a newspaper. Yeah, you absolutely get to say no to that. Um, Do not feel bad about that. That is, you know, uh, it is perfectly like even everything else aside about like not wanting the scrutiny on your family, which is really understandable. um, But to just say like, you know, you need to talk about this with a therapist, with a doctor, with friends, um, with our dad. Um, the, The place for these feelings to be processed is not in like the obituary section of the newspaper. Um, that's not to say, you know, if somebody wants to do an honest obituary, that's that's their choice. I, I, I'm sure that there are situations in which it feels helpful or useful or appropriate, but this is definitely not it. Um, and you absolutely get to draw a line. And um, it's really rough. It sounds like your, your brother has spent your father's entire life never saying, Dad, this isn't okay. I I don't like this. I don't want you to treat me this way. I'm going to, you know, minimize contact with you if you continue to behave in this way. He just kept saying, maybe this will work. Maybe this will work. And now that he's coming to the end of his life and and, and your brother is realizing that that never worked, it's like now he wants to make up for all of that by putting this big primal scream out there in public and just saying, well, fuck this guy then. Um, And that's, you know, just as destructive in the opposite direction as, as what he's been trying to do of like, 
turning your father into a better person against his will. Yeah, absolutely. That's really sad. Yeah. Yeah, that's really sad. No, you're paying for the funeral. You get to say no of $500 so that your brother can yell at your dad in a newspaper. Um, You do not have to do that. Um, You don't even have to worry about changing his mind. You just get to say, nope, I'm not going to do that. Yep. Yeah. And, and agree. And good luck to the letter writer. Like, it sounds like you're really uh, both financially and kind of physically and emotionally right now taking care of the end of your father's life as well as the funeral. Um, and, and you know, most of your life you've been able to kind of keep him at arm's length, but now you're kind of back in the thick of it. And that's really hard. It's really hard when, like, multiple children deal with the legacy of an abusive parent and they have different views of that parent and different experiences of that parent. And one person is like in a a furious place and another one is like, I've accepted it. And another one is like, it wasn't that bad. Like that's really hard Mm -hmm. to deal with multiple perspectives on an abusive parent. Really hard because everyone's truth is, I mean, no one's truth is any more true than another's. You know, everyone's reality is equally valid. And and because an abusive parent can be so destabilizing to your view on reality, um, like the coping strategies you may have come up with in your life or the ways in which you may have seen your father in order to make life bearable for yourself, like those are strategies that you've been employing to stay alive and to stay sane for years and decades. And when that person dies and you're kind of faced with, man, was that? Uh, an accurate reflection of reality? Was that just what I needed to get through the day? Um, Do I still feel the same way now? Like that can feel overwhelming. So, you know, uh, I would would also recommend, you know, your brother may or may not be able or interested or able to afford to go to therapy right now, but I sure hope you're able to just in terms of dealing with the stress of planning this funeral for someone who was hard, um, it was hard to be in a relationship with and and for a brother who's kind of flailing right now. For sure. Great advice. Do you do you have any thoughts on honest obituaries in general? I feel like every every year or so one will pop up and, and kind of make the rounds. Yeah, you know, it, uh, it's a tough thing because it's the reasons behind doing them are. That's always the first thing that I think about is what what was the what's the actual purpose of this thing because the person the person that it's directed at is gone, you know, and, and it seems like it's the kind of thing that's done, that's done in anger and that's done as a, as a sort of revenge tactic. Right. But then you have to think about, well, who is this really exacting revenge upon? Like yes. the memory of this person? Well, that's not a thing, you know, like that's, <laughs> and, and, are you are you trying to tell all the other people in the person's life that that you know maybe had a different view of that person or that like had thought that he was a good guy like no this guy was a a total dick and like here's why and just what is that going to do for you like how is that going to you know like if if that provides you with some sort of closure I guess that's one thing, but it's also seems like a it seems like a flawed way to go about it. I've seen one or two uh, that uh, had to do with a person who died of an active addiction, either in an overdose or in some sort of oh, those like, are yeah ailment. Um, and and I can see you know I mean obviously I think there are multiple ways to see those, but I understand the goal there is to be really honest about the nature of addiction and let other people know like the to- the human toll that it can take. And that um, I'm, abs- the, I'm actually a, a, in favor of those in general. Right. Uh, yes. Right. And I think there can be value. Like if you have an obituary of someone you loved, it does not have to be they were perfect. They were an angel. 
everything was great. You know, you can have a line or two in there about something that was, you know, you can you can talk about them as a as a rounded human being, but like one that is just so clearly my dad sucked and I want you all to know it. Um, you just have to ask, like, what would people be able to do with that information? Who would that help? Um, and, and what's the goal there, right? Like, what what do I want $500 worth of yelling about my dad for? Because you could get, you know, a couple of good therapy sessions in for $500, depending on where you live. Um, and you might find that more helpful than just having a newspaper clipping um, of, of how much your dad sucked. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, yeah. But I do think that, I actually do think that the the honest obituaries where they talk about addiction, um, I think are really important mm-hmm. um, because addiction forever, I mean, has been one of those things that just is, it's, it's in so many families and in so many communities, it's swept under the rug mm-hmm. and it's not legitimized and it's not talked about. And addiction, opiate addiction, I mean, ki- kids, young people are dying at, at, unprecedented rates now from this kind of stuff. Um, and, a, and a lot of it, you know, it's, it seems like a lot that the story in the stories that I've read, a lot of the common threads are the parents saying, I just didn't, I didn't realize it was that bad. I didn't realize what could happen. I didn't, I just didn't know until it was too late. And so if it's something that can be, and I think that, you know, an obit in that type of obituary, if it's done respectfully and it's done honestly, is a way to potentially help save other people. Right. And I, I would want to caution, too. I mean, I think there's so many different ways to think about it. And there's there's ways to write an honest obituary about somebody who, who has died as a result of an active addiction um, in a way that feels additionally stigmatizing or that kind of, like, takes away from that person's privacy. Like, even if a person has an addiction and even if they die as a result of the addiction, I think sometimes there's this sense of they they don't deserve a sense of privacy or we can talk about them in a way that we might not talk about somebody who did not have an addiction um, because of, of of how that addiction manifested itself in their lives, if that makes any sense. So I can definitely see too, like you're not obligated to write one um, and, and to always remember like this was still a person uh, and, 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 you know um, there's certain details that may be useful to other people and certain details that would maybe be shocking, titillating, uh, dehumanizing, um, that would not be something that would be necessary to share. But yeah, to just really think through, what do I want to accomplish with this is, I think, a good question before you write an obituary for anybody. Yes, I, I agree <sighs> with all that. Man. All right. Well, let's um, let's go ahead and tackle this this next letter, which is you know also about an abusive parent um, who who is still alive. Um, So the subject line of this one is just reconnecting with my abusive mother. Dear Prudence, both of my parents abused me, hitting me, threatening me, etc., but not my siblings. My father is dead, but several years ago, I finally told my mother that yes, she abused me, and she called me a liar and tried to force me to comfort her. One sibling told me to get over it. The other one said nasty things and is no longer in my life. They're both really submissive to my mother. Years before, I told my mother that her self-centered actions were pushing me away, and her response was that it was all my fault. More recently, she apologized, quote-unquote, for everything, without specifying what that meant. And when I tried to list examples of her emotional and physical abuse, while also acknowledging the good things she did as a parent, she said she couldn't deal with hearing the details at her age, she's 70, and asked if we could just move on. My mother contacts me once or twice a year asking to connect, and I always ignore her. I have zero interest in my siblings, but I do feel a primal tug toward my mother. 
I don't miss her. I'm glad I don't have to deal with her regularly. But I wish I had some kind of relationship with my mom. So do I contact her and risk the chaos from her endless neediness and psychological instability? Or do I live with the longing? There's no right or wrong answer. I'm just wondering about your thoughts. Oh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm glad they ended the letter acknowledging that there's no right or wrong answer because that was the first thing that leapt to mind was just, mm-hmm. I do not have a great answer for this. It sounds, well, here's sort of my first thought. Mm-hmm. Is it sounds like from the letter writer saying, I don't miss her and I'm glad I don't have to deal with her emotional crap regularly. Mm-hmm. That the primal tug that they're feeling may have more to do with the idea of what a mom could have been to them. Yeah. And not who this person actually is. Oh, man. Yeah, I think that's such an important distinction. And it's and it sucks and it's really unfortunate. But it sounds like, you know, for this person's whole life, they've been trying to figure out a, a path forward with the mother in a way that works for them. And it sounds like the mother, the mother is incapable of parenting in, a, in an appropriate way. Or even like talking. Or to, um, right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I think one of the things I try to do with questions like these is when it comes to like, keeping up some sort of connection with an abusive or a formerly abusive parent in adulthood um, is a really difficult question, and it really depends on the individual. Um, uh, You know, my instinct always is to say, man, if somebody can't offer you basic emotional respect and honesty, you do not owe them anything, no matter how related they are to you. Um, But I also get a lot of letters from people who say things like, I've tried going no contact and it brings me pain not to have any relationship with this person. And I've developed a strategy whereby I keep them at an arm's length. There are certain things we we simply don't discuss because it's clear they're incapable of it. But it feels worth it to me to talk a couple of times a year, uh, even if it's mostly about surface level things, uh, even if it's difficult sometimes, even if periodically I have to scale back even from that. And I always want to pay attention to that. Like if it feels like their primary goal is I don't want to cut them out of my life, um, or at least not right now, is to, to like honor and acknowledge that. Like um, everybody should be able to decide for themselves as long as they are basically like physically and financially safe. Like as long as you're, is that family member is not currently directly threatening your well-being um, is to say that like some people don't want to cut off a formerly abusive parent. And I, and I get that. And I, I want to be able to help somebody figure out like harm reductive ways to maintain low contact. But in this situation, it sounds like your issue is not I miss my mom because sometimes when she's not, you know, trying to warp my perception of reality, she can be there for me. It's just I wish I'd had a good mother. I wish my mom had loved me. I wish my mom had been able to demonstrate love in a healthy way. Um, I wish my mom had protected me from harm. I wish my mom had an accurate view of reality. I wish my mom didn't make me feel like I'm crazy or making things up. Um, and I wish she didn't lie. And that, I get, that's huge. Um, but you you also, letter writer, sound very aware that's not the mom you have. And she's not even anywhere close to it. Um, and that when you try to say, man, I'd love to talk about this even a little, she says, I can't. And, and it sounds like for you, you know, 
I don't miss her. I'm glad I don't have to put up with her. I just wish that I had a different kind of mother. I wish she had related to me in a different way. And I think that's so important to acknowledge the difference. Like you should give space to those feelings. Again, like another plug for therapy, like talk about that with a therapist. If there are other like older female figures in your life that you can kind of connect to and lean on for some emotional support, not like go find a replacement mom, but just somebody who can vaguely nurture in your direction once or twice a month. I hope you can do that and lean on those people. But yeah, I think you're right to not be in contact with your siblings. And I think you're right to not um, accept your mother's uh, overtures because it doesn't sound like you think you would get anything out of them. Um, And that would be the only reason to reestablish contact is if you felt like you would get something out of it. Yeah, all all of that seconded. Um, You know, what is... What is it that you would feel that you would get out of the relationship other than saying, being able to to say, I, I have a relationship with my mom, which doesn't sound like, which isn't, it doesn't sound like something you want with this specific person. Yep. Yep. And I think one thing I want to point out, too, that often comes up in cases like this is somebody will either hear from other people in their lives or just sort of have this internal fear Will I regret it if my parent dies and we never reconnected? And I don't know that that's the right question to ask, because when you're dealing with an abusive parent who cannot acknowledge the abuse that they, you know, carried out against you, regret's always going to be a part of that story. Whether you stay in contact, whether you don't stay in contact, whether you try to talk honestly about what they did to you or whether you keep your mouth shut about it because you know that they'll respond badly, there will always be regret. Um, because they hurt you and they continued to hurt you and then they denied that they had ever hurt you and then they told you that it was your fault that they hurt you. So there is no version of this story where you don't feel a regret, where you don't feel a primal tug, where you don't wish that something could have been different. Um, so to just bear that in mind, if there's ever a part of you that thinks, oh man, will I regret it if she dies and we never reconnected? Yeah, you will. Um, but you would also regret it if you did reconnect. And the regret is just there because of her actions, and and that's a feeling you'll have to grapple with no matter what you do. And regret is a strange word for it because it normally, you know, connotes something that something you did you did that's your fault that you wish you hadn't done. But in this case, because there is no right answer with someone who is an abuser who won't acknowledge the abuse, it isn't your fault. I mean, there's there's you'll have complicated feelings no matter what you do. Right. Yeah. Regret does not imply any wrongdoing on your part, to to be clear. Um, But yeah, that's just painful. And and I'm sorry. And I hope that you have people in your life that you can speak to about this and that you can get comfort and nurturing from because that's really important no matter how old you are. Um, Emily, before I let you go, I was hoping to answer a voicemail today. We haven't been able to do one of those in a while. Would you be uh, amenable to sticking around for another couple of minutes? Yeah, of course. Fabulous. Uh, hey, so um, I'm 29. Uh, for the past seven years, my mom's been dating this guy, Alcohol Peter. He's on the high end of the autism spectrum. Um, he has some good attributes. He's nice, he's dependable, but he's also extremely needy, emotional, sensitive, and terribly annoying. Um, if you hurt his feelings, which is super easy to do, because it can be from something little like asking him not to call mom while I'm at work, he'll, he'll cry. Um, if I give him a nice friendly phone call to urging on my mom, he'll follow up by calling me over and over and over again for the next few days until I tell him to stop. 
um, there was just one episode uh, a few years ago where he kept staring at my breasts and I had to tell him not to and my mom wouldn't intervene because she said he couldn't help it. Um, but the real problem is that he keeps trying to call himself my father or stepfather. So I've made it clear that I prefer to call him Peter or my mom's partner. Um, my real dad's out of the picture. My mom will not stop asking me to spend more time with him, to be nicer to him, to call him my stepfather or father, to have father-daughter time with him, to hug him, to tell him I love him, to love him for my mom's sake, if not for my own. Um, and she's got her own issues. She's incredibly defensive. So any attempt I've made at trying to explain my feelings has been treated like a, like a personal attack on her love life. Um, when I first started dating, I voiced my concern about their relationship. Uh, just to my mom, not because of anything I've looked to hear, but because of a violent and disturbing thing he had done a few years prior to him meeting my mom. Um, she didn't talk to me for a year until I apologized. I do want her to be happy, um, and I don't want her to feel like she's caught in the middle of anything. But is it is it fair for her to ask for more? Do I owe Peter anything other than politeness? I guess I just kind of want to know if I'm being too cold. I, I think I want to separate a couple of things here. Uh, one is that, uh, you know, um, to, to, to separate what your mother and her boyfriend are asking of you from the fact that he is on the spectrum. Um, you know, some of these things may be connected. Some of them may not. Um, being on the spectrum does not mean that you... Uh, like that is not necessarily the cause of all of this behavior. Um, the majority of people on the spectrum are are, are often very uh, concerned about transgressing social boundaries and 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 spend a great deal of time um, trying to make sure uh, that they that they are uh, following social norms and and not overstepping anyone's boundaries. So I just want to make it really clear: like one is not necessarily causative of the other, and that it is also really okay for you to set boundaries and not feel like you. You cannot do it because um, he is on the spectrum, which I felt like was maybe implicit in the question. So just want to really acknowledge um, those two things are not necessarily uh, the same issue. Um, and this is uh, this is pretty, pretty, pretty not OK. Um, what's what's going on here? Um, Emily, do you are, are you feeling similarly? Like, do you do you? Yeah, feel like- this is really not okay. There's a lot of things that are really not okay that are happening right now right. in this situation. Um, and it also seems like psychologically, there are a lot of things that are happening with both the mom and her boyfriend that don't have anything to do with the spectrum, as you were saying. Um, no one, no matter how old you are, ever gets to tell you that you ever gets to tell you who to call your father. Right? You know, I mean, that's the first that's number that's the first thing. Um but that's not up to anyone else but you. Yep. You know, I mean, it, that's the truth whether you're 29 or whether you're 10 that that's something that you as a as an individual human being have total agency over and it's not anyone else's um, responsibility or place to control that. And someone who does repeatedly try to control that is a really major red flag. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I mean, absolutely. Like that would be the case no matter, you know, what age you were, but especially considering you are almost 30 years old. Um, uh, Peter and your mother did not get together until you were in like your 
mid-20s. Um, you know, he didn't raise you. Uh, he's not He's not your father. He has not functioned as a father in your life. Um, and that's a really, really okay thing to say. It's like, mom, he's not my dad. He's not my stepdad. He's your partner. Um, I respect the place that he has in your life. But like, this is a closed conversation. We're not having mm-hmm. it again. The next time you or him ask me about this, I'm going to say, if you remember, I told you that this was closed and I'm going to walk away or hang up the phone. Um, And if that means we talk less, then that means we talk less. Like until they get it, that is a line that you absolutely get to defend with all of your might. Yep, you have no obligation. And and I gotta say, I'm 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 just really distressed that he's calling you repeatedly at work. Um, that there was an incident where he was staring at your breasts, and your mom acknowledged that that's what he was doing, um, and said he could not help it. Um. That is possibly an even bigger red flag than the insistence that you call him your father. Um, yeah. For your mom to say, like, yep, he was staring at your breasts, but he can't help it and there's nothing you can do about it. Like, that is, uh, like, a threat to your physical safety, man. Like, that's so not okay. And, and that she's demanding you to hug him, to say that you love him. It just feels like unbelievably inappropriate behavior of just like he gets to stare at you in a sexual way and I'm not going to do anything about it. You need to touch him more. You need to tell him that you love him. You need to call him your father. You don't get to set boundaries or limits. You don't get to say when you feel uncomfortable. Like what they are asking of you is so inappropriate um, and so unacceptable that I, 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 I think you need to go pretty low contact for a while. Like this isn't to say that you can't ever have them in your life or 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 that your mom is irredeemably bad but like I, I i just the fact that you once said i'm concerned that at some point he's he's either been involved in some sort of violent altercation or, or committed an act of violence and her response to that was to stop talking to you for a year until you apologize like this is not going to get better i think no no and your mom is really putting you in a terrible position yes your problem is not with peter your problem is with your mom I think, um, because while Peter is is the person who is, um, you know, violating your boundaries uh, and and doing really inappropriate things, your mom's the person that you have the primary relationship with. And your mom's the person who's made it really clear um, that she will always choose, um, you know, his violations of your boundaries over your safety and your comfort and your feelings. So, uh, you know, for me, I just got to say. You say you want her to be happy. You don't want her to feel like she's in the middle of anything. Your mother's happiness is not your responsibility. um, And you're not putting her in the middle of a goddamn thing. She's putting you in the middle. And she's doing it repeatedly. She's not just putting you in the middle. She's telling you she's going to pick him over you every time. And that it is Mm -hmm. your job to always apologize, to always back down, to always say things are okay when they're not, and to let him, like transgress your boundaries professionally by calling you at work repeatedly, uh, physically by like staring at your tits and demanding hugs, um, emotionally by saying you have to call me dad. Like um, she is not going to stop. And if you apologize again, they will make a new demand of you and they will, you know, wear you down until you do it. Um, So I think for right now, the road ahead is mom, I love you very much. Um, I I care about you and I want you to be happy. Um, Your partner's not my father. I don't feel comfortable hugging him. 
I don't love him. I'm happy to offer him my friendliness and respect, um, but I will not call him my father because he isn't. Um, and I, I'm not going to allow myself to be touched in a way that makes me uncomfortable. Um, I, I, I'm not going to tell him I love him when I don't. Um, and, you know, if that is what you need from me, we are not going to be able to talk. And that's going to be really hard because it'll feel like you're doing something cruel or taking something away from your mother or demeaning her relationship. And that's not what you're doing. You're not taking away anything from her. You're demanding your own space as a human being. Mm-hmm. Your your self preservation. Yep. I mean, yep. she's put you in a place where you need to draw that line. Yep. Yep. And you, you know, you're aware already that she's incredibly defensive. But right now, you're in that place of what can I do to make her feel safer so that she doesn't get defensive. And the answer is the only way you can do that is to give in to every single thing that she asks of you. And you can't do that. Like self-abnegation is not the answer here. Um, The only thing you can do is say, this is my space. This is my body. These are my boundaries. If you cannot honor and acknowledge them, we cannot be in contact. And that's awful. That's really hard, especially when you love your mother and it's been painful for you in the past when she's withdrawn contact. But um, otherwise, you are just looking at another seven years of the same behavior, but escalating. And I don't want that for you. And you don't deserve that. Not at all. And, you know, even if you did give in, because if because if you did give in, it would just, the demands would just keep escalating. There would, it would never be enough. They would. It doesn't sound like no, these are, it would not. that she's a person who would ever be like, okay, great. You've done, you've done what I asked. There would always be, yeah. I need you to do this and this and this and this. Yeah. So, yeah, no, your, you know, your last question was, I want to know if I'm being too cold. Absolutely not. You are not being cold in the slightest. Um, you're trying to to demand to be treated like a human being. Um, and if they can't do that, um, then that's sad. But that's not something that you're doing. That's not a situation you created. Um, you're not being insensitive. You're not trying to undermine their relationship. You're just saying, I will not allow my own will and my own needs to be sacrificed so that you too can feel like you have access to me in the way that you want. And that is not coldness. How I long for the genteel days of there's piss under the toilet seat at work. <laughs> what do I do? Um, because they seem, they seem so long ago so now. So far away. And I think fondly on that letter. Yeah. Um, no, but this, I mean, this is, the, this is big stuff. This is the stuff of life. This is so key. And it's so hard to say no to our parents, especially when we're used to patterns that have been going on for a really long time. Emily, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Before I send you all off back into the world, I want to talk a little bit about a letter that I got in the column this week that was really fascinating. It was a one of those kind of classic letters of I am a member of a family where uh, we I'm the least racist member of my family, I guess the less the least overtly racist member in my family. What do I do with that? Uh, which is a not uncommon theme in this column. Uh and it was sort of interesting that they've been able to talk to their family about sort of big issues and sort of agreed like, well, segregation was bad and the internment camps of World War II were bad and, and the current president is, is very misguided when it comes to matters of race and religion. Um, so they're all kind of on the same page there. But the, the point of contention was um, the, the rest of the family was really upset at the prospect of certain popular fictional characters 
like Superman, Indiana Jones, uh, that kind of thing, who have been, you know, portrayed uh, across multiple, uh, you know, platforms over the years and decades by various actors in comics and in movies and TV shows. And the family member said something along the lines of, you know, if a character that has previously always been portrayed as white um, is played by a non-white actor, uh, white people lose something. The, the, the actual quote is, I argued that it would make no difference to the story. And a family member said that everything is being taken from white people and something needs to be left for us. It's really starting to make me uncomfortable. How, the, how do I help them see that equality for all does not mean we will lose anything? And I went into sort of in depth in the column talking about, you know, how do you address that? How do you encourage somebody to sort of rethink the premises that that statement is based on? Because it's, you know, this very big emotional sense of perceived threat uh, when in actuality there there is no threat. Like, you know, what what would a person, what would a, what would a white person lose uh, at the possibility of like a non-white Spider-Man? What about Spider-Man requires whiteness to function? And kind of talking about how can you encourage them to think about that more in depth and to challenge some of those assumptions um, and, you know, kind of handle the basics of that in the column. But I was struck by um, this sense, uh, this thought at the end of it, which is we're not going to lose anything um, because that's partly very true. Nothing is lost. You know, uh, Harrison Ford still played Indiana Jones in a bunch of movies uh, and that would not disappear if someday, like, an Asian man were to play Indiana Jones. That would not disappear. Um, but in another sense, this family member is responding to a real sense of loss, like a genuine sense of loss, which is, you know, when white supremacy starts to crumble, you lose supremacy. And that's true. Like, it is not true that everything is being taken away from white people, but the sense of loss that they are acknowledging is, White supremacy used to be a lot less, uh, a, a lot less questionable. It, it didn't used to seem uh, so vulnerable before, um, and now it does, and that is a real loss. Like, in, and it's a good loss. Like when white supremacy starts to crumble, that is a good thing. But like, you are responding to a very real sense of loss uh, because what you are losing is, you know, hundreds of years of ill-gotten gains. What you think of as the normal way of being in the world um, is in fact, you know, heaps upon heaps of things that have been forcibly taken from other groups of people. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, there's no threat. Nothing's being taken from you. And on the other hand, yeah, you are losing some things. And and you should, and we should, and that is necessary and long overdue uh, and important. And it should not be, you know, whether that's in, like, film interpretations of popular characters um, or, or, you know, the ways in which, like, banks offer mortgages um, or, or whatever other area of life. Um, those are important and necessary losses. We should not have those things. We should not have taken them in the first place. Um, and it is good that white hegemony is crumbling. And and I can see why, um, you know, for a person who has never questioned it before and has always thought of it as the natural order of things, watching that start to change um, and vanish is destabilizing and frightening. And you can either respond to that by saying, white people are losing everything. This is bad. We've got to protect 
the, you know, important whiteness of Batman or whatever. And I think that's a bad strategy. I think that's a bad response. Um, or you can say, uh, you can kind of try to study history and look at, like, where is this coming from? How did we as a group get these things? Who did we take them from? Um, what has this been resting upon for decades or centuries? Um, and, and why do I feel like I deserve it? Why do I feel like it's rightfully mine? What do I think of as my birthright? And why do I think of it that way? Like, who promised me I could have this? Um, and at whose expense did this come? Um, so just... It's a big conversation to have with your family, and it's kind of about Spider-Man, and it's kind of not at all about Spider-Man. And I think the best way to have that conversation is to ask gentle, leading questions in as genuine a tone as you possibly can. Um, uh, but yeah, the question is really like, what are you afraid of losing? Uh, and why? And and why do you think you deserved it? And why do you feel like um, representation is a zero-sum game? Like, why would it be impossible for you like, why would a white person lose something if there were a black Spider-Man? Like, what would make it impossible for you to connect with, identify with, admire, enjoy that Spider-Man? Like, what what about that would not work for you? Um, and it's going to be it's going to be an ongoing conversation and it's not going to be something that your relative will change their mind about overnight. But encourage them to think more deeply about the premise that white people are losing everything because um, everything's a pretty big word um, and it's worth checking some premises again. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Audrey Dilling. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Your opinion matters. So if you like this show, please go to iTunes and write us a review. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute tops. 